bar and have a beer, it's wrong for them. Right? And so there's this disagreement still within, um, within the church. Another modern example is dancing. You know, God never prohibits dancing. In fact, one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament is about David uh, dancing with the Ark of the Covenant. Um, there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, but for some individuals, right, they see dancing and they see what it's become in our culture, how it's been sexualized and how it's associated with all, um, tort- all sorts of sin. And so for them, they see dancing and it just it feels wrong to them. And they think Christians should not participate in dancing. And so these are some modern examples about liberties. And we'll talk about many of them. And I've tried to organize this lesson and sprinkle many of these examples to try to show you how broad this topic of Christian liberty really is. Um, But let's talk about, uh, let me give you a little bit about the outline for us. And here's the question that we're going to explore. As Christians, how can we faithfully steward our liberty? As Christians, how can we faithfully steward our liberty? Um, As you can see, right, Christian liberty, it it spans many different things. But how can we be faithful to honor God with our liberty? And just as an outline for us, we're talking about right now in Roman numeral number one, uh, what is Christian liberty? And we're trying to explore this idea. But then we'll talk about number two, is how should I view other Christians' liberty? especially when you disagree with how they exercise their liberty. And then number three, we're going to talk about how should I view my own liberty. And that's really when we get to this idea of stewardship, that God truly has given you much freedom and much liberty, but we need to uh, use them in a way that's responsible, to be a good steward of them, right? To use, them, to, to use our liberties in a way that honor God and that love, uh, that, that love and in a way that is loving towards others. And so that's our outline. And so we're going to still continue with Roman numeral number one of what is Christian liberty. Some of the key passages, and I encourage you to bookmark them if you can because we'll be flipping back and forth between them, but it's Romans 14 and 15 and 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. And so we'll be looking at select, uh, select passages from those two books. So you can actually turn first to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And to begin with, we're going to be talking about really the the classic um, example or or the dominant example of uh, Christian liberty um, that's found uh, in the Bible. And this is the idea or or the topic of meat sacrifice to idols or food sacrifice to idols. So let me set the context a little bit. So remember, this is in... 2,000 years ago, um, there's many, many different pagan religions. And actually, similar to Israel, a lot of these pagan religions, they would require um, people to have animal sacrifices. Uh, And so they would bring that animal to uh, their temple, um, slaughter it, maybe offer a burnt offering or something like that, right? So there would be a lot of meat, right? You slaughter a cow, there's a lot of meat. Um, I'm assuming that many of the the priests or the equivalent of of priests, they would take some of that, right, to feed themselves and potentially their family. Um, But there's a lot of leftovers. So what do they do with this meat? Well, they they try to sell it, right? They could bring that meat to the marketplace or maybe actually at the temple itself might have been right at the marketplace and they would sell that meat. And so the question is, can a Christian... Can a lover of Jesus Christ eat this meat or food that has been sacrificed to idols? This meat has been used in idolatrous worship. Can a Christian actually eat it? And so Paul, he explores this in 1 Corinthians 
chapter 8, verse 4. Oops, I've got a little ahead of myself. So verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there, are, there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so Paul acknowledges this topic of food, sacrifice, offered to idols. Um, but then he makes the claim, right, that, well, as Christians, we actually understand that there's no real such thing as an idol. Uh, they're all just made up by people. And there's only one God, one Lord, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so he tells them, for the people who understand this, right, that idol, there's no such thing, there's nothing magical or mystical that happens to this meat, Paul actually says that, hey, if you believe that, you can actually go buy that meat. Maybe it's a good manager special, and you can go enjoy that ribeye steak tonight, right? And he says, you can go and eat that meat. And so that's one category of Christians. But then Paul addresses a second one, and we continue reading in verse 7. However, right, contrast, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We are no off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. And so in verse 7, it describes this second group of Christians who don't possess this knowledge, right? And it, it tells us that they had former association with this idol, Maybe this Christian used to worship in that very temple where that meat was sacrificed. And perhaps before he offered many animal sacrifices himself. And so when he sees that meat on sale in the marketplace, he doesn't want to eat it. It feels wrong to him because it's associated with his former idolatrous worship. And so there's these two categories of people, the meat eaters and the non-meat eaters. And the question is, they're, they're both Christians. They both follow Jesus Christ. They believe in him. How come there's these differences? Well, what distinguishes these two groups of people is their conscience, their conscience. And we see that at verse 7, their conscience. Here's a definition uh, that Kevin DeYoung gives. Uh, the conscience, it's the moral faculty in human beings that assesses what is good and bad. And so this definition, it probably already fits what you think the conscience is, and that's because, I, you know, I think how we use the word conscience in today's English is, is pretty much on point. It's that inner subjective sense that you have, it's God-given, that gives you a sense of right and wrong. Um, this is why when I go into a store and, and I see some, you know, expensive jewelry or something, I... I don't steal it because my conscience tells me that it's wrong, right? And you probably have that similar experience too where you, you kind of want it to do something but your conscience just grips you and you, and you realize it's, it's wrong, right? That's your conscience speaking to you. So in this example of meat sacrificed to idols, Paul describes the second individual as being weak in conscience. And the former individual will call them strong in conscience. So, Strong in conscience, who are they? It's a believer whose conscience understands that he is free 
to enjoy a liberty. Right? It's a believer whose conscience, when he saw that meat in the marketplace, his conscience didn't tell him it was wrong. In fact, maybe his conscience said, hey, this is, this is, this is on sale. It's a good use of my money here. And so he feels fine going and, and buying that meat. That's the strong in conscience here, someone who understands that they can enjoy a liberty. And then there's a second group of people, the weak in conscience. Now, the weak in conscience is a believer whose conscience convicts him that a liberty is wrong or will lead into sin. And that's exactly what we see here in verse 7. For that individual, it's their conscience that is weak. It's their conscience that, is prick, that, that tells them that what he's about to do behind that meat is wrong. So we have the strong conscience and the weak in conscience. Now, before we continue on the topic of Christian liberty, there are a couple of notes that I, additional notes I want to make on the conscience to give us a fuller understanding of what this is. Um, so, number one, um, the conscience is a gift uh, from God that protects us from sin, uh, but it is not the ultimate authority. Right? What's the ultimate authority? It's God's word. And so our conscience should never be ignored. You know, once again, it's a gift from God. It's God's grace that each one of us has a conscience. But there are times when your conscience may allow you to do something that's wrong. Maybe you see something in the store and you really want it and you feel nothing when you take it and you take it home. And your conscience allows you to do that. That's wrong, right? Because God says, you shall not steal. And so... Again, once again, your conscience should never be ignored. We should always pay attention when our conscience says something is, is wrong, or, uh, but we should not always follow it. We should always follow God's word. Number two, uh, violating your conscience is sinful. Violating your conscience is sinful. Um, this is found in Romans 4, uh, 14, 23. And, and just as a, some context, right, sometimes Paul uses, you know, weakened conscience. Sometimes he uses weakened faith. Um, but in this uh, context, it, it means the, the same thing. So Romans 14, 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Okay, so Paul explains here that if you eat something and it's not done in faith, it's not done in good conscience, for that individual, it's sinful. So if the weak believer eats that meat for that believer, it's sin. Note number three here is that the conscience is influenced by life experiences and biblical principles. See that in verse 7 about the weak conscience, that his conscience was affected by his former religion. You know, for better or worse, right, the things that we experience in this world before, Christian, before Christ and after Christ, it has an influence on our conscience. Um, but at the same time, and what we hope as we mature in Christ, is that our conscience becomes more and more influenced by biblical principles. As we study God's word, as we hear the teaching and preaching of God's words through prayer, we want our conscience to be molded and affected more and more by the word of God. And so your conscience will change as you grow in Christ. Last note, and this one, I, I don't know if, not, perhaps not everyone would agree with me on this one, but this is a point that, that I hold to. Uh, number four is that being strong in conscience is not the same thing as being spiritually mature. Being strong in conscience is not the same thing as being spiritually uh, mature, right? And let me kind of get into this. Um, Paul, he never gives the command to the weak 
Christian, to the weak in conscience, that, that they need to become strong, that they need to overcome their convictions, right? And they need to start exercising more and more liberties as they grow, right? Paul never mentions that. In fact, he, he also never tells the strong Christian, you know, you should try to convince and, 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 and uh, convince and force the weaker Christian to participate in liberty, right? God never actually gives that command, and what he commands and said, and what we'll get into, is that the weak and strong, they need to be unified despite their differences in liberty. Uh, another example, right, is that your conscience doesn't necessarily get stronger as you mature. There are times that as you grow in Christ, as you mature, your conscience actually gets weaker. And let, let me give an example. Um, say, someone was, uh, say someone was just saved, right? Um, he believes in Christ, and it's great. He's following Christ faithfully. He's, he's living in obedience to him. Um, but he also likes to exercise his liberty by way of going on nice vacations. Um, he likes to travel, right? Maybe he likes to, you know, go to Europe or he likes to, you know, uh, I don't know, go to Hawaii, go to the, the Caribbean or whatever. And he likes to, you know, spend money on traveling. Nice hotels, nice airplanes, nice food. And he likes to do that. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? God has created this world and he's free to enjoy God's creation. Um, but over the course of time, he matures in his Christian, uh, his, uh, uh, his maturity, right? And he starts to actually become, uh, he, he grows in his love for uh, things like missions uh, or the local church or other Christian organizations. And he starts to look at his budget, right? And he sees all the money that he's spending on vacations and his conscience becomes pricked, right? He, he sees all the money and he doesn't feel right about it anymore. And instead, what feels right to him is actually taking part of that budget, or maybe all of that budget, and actually giving it to the work uh, of God. Um, you see, for this individual, right, his conscience is getting weaker, um, but I would actually argue that he's getting more mature um, in faith. And so, that's all to say, right, strong conscience is not the same thing as spiritual uh, maturity, all right? So, Let's talk about some more examples of Christian liberty, or I've titled it gray areas, once again, to emphasize that they are controversial. Um, here's some biblical examples. Once again, eating meat sacrificed to idol. And even though I call it a biblical example and it happened 2,000 years ago, I know for many of you, and myself included, that a lot of family members still eat meat or they still have food sacrifices offered to their ancestors or to whatever their religion or their culture is. And so this is actually a very direct uh, application for, for you tonight. Uh, another example is observing Jewish holidays. Um, one other key example in Scripture is receiving compensation as a minister of the gospel. Uh, we'll learn more about that um, later today. Um, but here are some modern-day gray areas. And I've tried to list a lot. It actually wasn't that hard because, once again, this topic is broadly applicable. And I hope some of them will actually surprise you. Um, so here are some modern examples. Um, alcohol, dancing, I mentioned it. Uh, gun ownership, very controversial. Uh, spending money on luxury. Uh, how you vote in elections, who you vote for. Uh, entertainment choices, music, media, uh, dating methods. Um, Christian holidays, things like Christmas and, and Easter, um, Lent, right? Secular holidays. Do you, do you celebrate Halloween, for example? Uh, cultural practices, right? There's a lot of cultural practices that are kind of borderline, kind of edgy, kind of influenced by pagan religion, but 
we can also practice it if, if it doesn't cross the line. Here's one that's very controversial, smoking. Again, not in the Bible. It's a liberty. Tattoos, working on Sundays, uh, clothing choices, and I also put education choices, right? There's something that, as, as parents, we have to think about is, do we send our kids to public school, private school, home school? Right? This is a Christian liberty choice. And here's some, so here are some modern examples. And I, I, once again, I've tried to sprinkle some of these examples throughout the lesson to make it a bit more concrete. But I want you to be thinking about these modern examples. And maybe you have one in mind right now. And it'll help, it'll help you make this lesson even more applicable to you right now. So all this has been under number one of what is Christian liberty. So now we move on to number two. Um, how should I view other Christians' liberty? Now we're talking about other people, right? We're talking about when we have disagreements within the church. How are we supposed to treat each other? Um, can we be in the same fellowship together? Can we be at the same church together, small group? Can we even be friends with someone who has different liberties than us? That's what we're exploring right now. And so please turn to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. So, let's read it. Romans 14, verses 1 through 3. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. So very clearly, right? What do we do with Christians that we have differing liberties? God says very clearly in verse 1 to welcome them. That's the command, to welcome them. You see, these Christian liberties, even though right, you may feel deep in your conscience that it's wrong for you, if it's a liberty issue, God actually tells us to welcome Christians with differing liberties, to remain unified. And so, yes, we, we can and we should be, we can be in the same church. We can be in the same fellowship, small group. And you can be best of friends with people who, have, who you have deep disagreements with liberty issues. And I love how Paul describes it at the end of verse 1, that these are opinions. These are opinions. This is your opinion whether you can participate in a liberty or not. This is not a, some hard truth, not some hardcore theological truth that we all need to agree with. And you also find at the end of verse 1 that um, Paul gives some more explanation of what is entailed by uh, this idea of welcoming others. Uh, and that's found, uh, excuse me, so the first bullet here is to, to don't quarrel over opinions. Right? These are opinions once again. This is not something that should cause division within the church. We're called not to quarrel. And now that doesn't mean you, sh you shouldn't have discussions, even passionate discussions about these liberty issues. We should, right? Iron sharpens iron. We need that. We need those discussions. We need other Christians to check us, right? To sharpen our thinking. But once it gets to the point of quarreling where you're fighting against each other, that's when it has to stop. Um, good way, good measure to, for this is after you discuss with a brother or sister about a liberty is you have to ask yourself after that conversation, uh, is my relationship, is my fellowship with this individual stronger than it was or the same as it was before we started that conversation about liberty? Uh, you should sharpen each other. But if you answered no, well, actually, you know, I have, I'm, I'm upset at that person or I have this bitterness against them or, or things just don't feel right, you're probably quarreling. 
and you got to make up, right? That's where things should stop. And so that's what we have to do. Uh, that's part of welcoming them, right, is not to quarrel. Continuing on, verse um, 3, we actually see even more specific commands. Um, and he gives specific commands to the strong and the weak Christian. Let's look in verse 3. He says, let not the one who eats, so that's the strong. He's addressing the strong directly here. He says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. So he tells the strong, right, um, not to despise, not to look down upon the weak, right? And this is the common temptation. If you believe that you have liberty to do something and you see someone who, whose conscience doesn't allow them, you may have the temptation, you'll likely have the temptation to look down on them. Say, hey, you don't understand your liberty. Don't you know you're free in Christ to do this? And you may even make fun of them, belittle them. Right? That's despising. We're not to do that. But look here. He also gives a command to the weak. And you, in the first reading, you may think that Paul is only addressing the strong Christian here, but that's not the case. You see in the middle of verse 3, let not the one who abstains... That's the weak, weak in conscience. They abstain. So let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. And so the temptation for the weak Christian is to look at the strong, to look at the one who's exercising this liberty and to judge them for it. To say, hey, what you're doing, it's wrong. It's sinful. And to rebuke them for it. Right? That's the temptation for the weak, is to judge them. Example of this is, say, wearing masks. Um, COVID, this pandemic, has opened up a huge new box of Christian liberties that, frankly, did not exist uh, two years ago. Um, over the past two years, you've seen many, many different pastors or blog posts or, or whoever give their opinions about what we should do and how we should handle this pandemic. But frankly, it's nowhere in the Bible. Right? COVID's not mentioned in the Bible. Pandemic is not mentioned in the Bible. And so this how we deal with the pandemic falls squarely within Christian liberty. I look out in this room right now, and I see some mask wearers. I see some people without masks. And frankly, I love it. I love to see it. And I love it not because we all have different opinions about it. I love it because I hope and I pray that it's a reflection of our unity in Christ despite our differences on this issue. But let's relate it back to the strong and the weak. So the strong in this case are people, and, and I'm, this, is, this is my interpretation, right? The, the strong are the people who understand that, hey, wearing a mask is no longer a requirement. Our government doesn't require it. Our church leaders don't require it. And so I'm free to go maskless. But for the weak in conscience, they, they see that, yeah, COVID is still, very, is a, still a very real illness. And so they wear a mask to love their neighbors, right? They, they don't want to spread this disease. They don't want to contract this disease themselves. They want to be a good steward of their body that God has given to them. And so they say, hey, my conscience doesn't allow me to go massless because I want to love my neighbor. But you can see the temptation here. You can see the temptation for the strong, for people who don't wear masks, to look at people wearing masks. And I'm looking at you right now, right? To look at people with masks on and say, don't you have faith in God? Don't you know God is sovereign? Like, what are, you, what are you so scared of, right? What's the worst that can happen to you? You get COVID, you die, and you go to heaven. Like, where's your faith? Come on, man. And the temptation for the strong is to despise the weak. 
and to look down on them because they're not exercising a liberty. That's wrong. God says to welcome them and to be unified despite that. But you can also see the temptation for the weak, for the, to look at those people without masks and to judge them for it and say, hey, you're not wearing a mask? That's not being responsible. That's not loving your neighbor. You need to put a mask on. You're in sin. That's wrong too. That's not welcoming. But instead, God tells us to welcome one another. But why? At the end of verse 3, for God has welcomed him. You see, the reason why we welcome one another despite our differences in liberty is because God himself welcomes all Christians despite their liberty. God has welcomed both the weak and the strong. Paul goes on to say in verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? You have no right to put, your place, to, to put yourself in the place of God and call something sin when it's not sin. You have no right to do that. And then he says, it is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. You have no right to put down your brother to despise them, because guess who's holding him up? It's God. And so we have no right to judge people because of their liberties. We have no right to despise them because of their liberties. But once again, the command that we have from God is to welcome them, to maintain our unity despite our liberties. So that's how we should respond to Christians with differing liberties, is to welcome them. Now we get to section three. Is how should I view my own liberty? So we've been talking this whole time about you know, other people's liberty, but now it's time to look at yourself. So I don't want you to be looking at the person next to you now, right? This is about you and your own conscience before God. And so what I've done is, as I've studied this, I've, I've come up with these four guiding questions uh, to steward my Christian liberty. And you'll see that I've tried to switch all the pronouns to be first person because this is about yourself. This is about, uh, this is about you. And so, four guiding questions to steward my liberty. And one note here, I want to say that I put these in order of priority. Right? If you are wondering if you should exercise a liberty, these are this is really the proper order that, that you should um, ask yourself. So, first question here. Does exercising this liberty honor God? And a correlate to that, will this liberty lead me into sin? So the question is, will this liberty honor God? That's the first question you should ask yourself if you want to exercise a liberty. Um, in Romans 14, um, Paul says several times that your liberty should be exercised in honor of the Lord. Everything that you do, all the liberties you participate should be honoring to God. Um, and here's also a key verse that I'm sure you've seen before. Um, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Um, but what I would, I'm willing to bet is that many, that, that many have, don't understand actually what Paul's talking about when he's saying whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. If you look at the context, he's actually talking about liberty here. Whether you eat or drink, right? whether you participate in liberty of this food sacrifice to idols, or whatever you do, or, or, or whether you don't participate in this liberty, honor God, do all to the glory of God. 
And so when you're thinking about exercising a liberty, that's what you have to ask yourself is how does this honor God? And if you're not able to articulate it, you're not able to give a good reason of why or how this liberty honors God, you probably shouldn't be doing it. Probably shouldn't be doing it. And I'm not saying necessarily that it has to be some, you know, some big philosophical, you know, 10-page essay or whatever, right? It doesn't need to be that. But you should have some way of explaining how this honors God, how this honors God. I mentioned before about spending money on a vacation, right? Simple explanation could be, hey, it's, it's a time for me to rest and to recharge, right? To follow God's example, you know, seventh day of creation, he, he rested from his work. And so I'm, I'm applying that now. Or maybe you want to grow closer to your family or have fellowship with your friends, or you just want to enjoy the, the creation that, that God has made, right? These are all good answers to that question of how does this liberty honor God? One example that I do want to challenge you thinking about is your choice of entertainment, uh, media, uh, moves, uh, music, and video games. Something you have to ask yourself when you listen to certain musics or watch certain, certain shows, to ask yourself, does this honor God? Right? And understand that there's a lot of um, liberty here, right? Um, but at the same time, there's also a lot of sin that's glorified in a lot of shows, music, or, or whatever. Um, could be sex, could be excessive violence, could be materialism. It could glorify adulterous relationships. And understand, you know, sometimes it's somewhat unavoidable, unfortunately, in the culture that we live. But what I want to challenge you with is as you're watching these shows, um, you really have to ask yourself, how does this honor God? And are you being entertained by sin? Think about it. And why are you watching a certain show that's a little bit edgy? Is it because your heart is drawn to a particular sin? Once again, it could be sex or materialism or, or whatever. Is that why you're watching that show? And once again, this is between you and God. Is that why you're watching that show? And really the real question is, are you being entertained by something that Christ died for? You've got to ask yourself that. So, does this liberty honor God? That's the first question we should ask if you want to exercise a liberty. Now the second question. Does this liberty violate my conscience. Does this liberty violate my conscience? Um, I've already uh, said in, in Romans 14, 23, that violating your conscience is sin. Once again, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Um, because the eating is not from faith. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so before you participate in the liberty, you really need to ask yourself that deep down inside, do you feel any twinge of of guilt? Do you feel that prick of your conscience that's telling you that this liberty is wrong? Because if it does, you shouldn't do it. You should abstain from that liberty because violating your conscience, once again, is sinful. Example here is uh, dating methods. And I know you guys had a, long, uh, a very long series on dating at the end of last year, so I'm not going to go into it. I know Ray, had, Ray and Roger have gone into many of these things before. Um, but dating methods, there, there are many of them, right? Courtship, um, just casual dating, arranged marriages, online dating, right? Uh, or maybe you just want to propose and, and get married the next day. These are all under the umbrella of Christian liberty because God doesn't address 
dating. It doesn't tell you how to date, uh, what, how long you should date for, or anything like that. And so many of these, um, or all these dating methods, you have to ask yourself, of what does your conscience allow for? Of course, you should be, once again, you should be guided by biblical principles. You have to understand that hey, you're not married, and you shouldn't be doing things that married people do. You know, that includes being pure physically. That also means, you know, in your responsibilities or, or the time that you spend to each other, right, your obligations are not the same as a married couple. And so you apply those principles. But once again, there is a vast amount of liberty in dating methods. And for some of you, your conscience, you think about all these different dating methods, and you say, hey, I don't, I don't feel anything. Right? I'm okay with any of these dating methods, right? I can do online dating. I can do courtship model. I could uh, just propose to someone get married. Hey, my conscience is, is fine with all of these things. And as long as it's influenced by biblical principles, that's great. It's your freedom. But for some, your conscience tells you otherwise. Where you look at these different dating methods, you see, you know, for example, you know, the casual dating that we see in this world, your conscience feels wrong. Because you want to be intentional, right? You want, you want to make sure you're not, you know, Kind of, you're not, um, you're not, you're not respecting uh, the boundaries of marriage, right? And so you want to avoid that casual type of dating relationship. Or maybe you look at online dating, and it just feels wrong to you, right? Because you don't want to be, you know, flipping through different profiles. You don't want to grow, you know, perhaps an, an idol of marriage in your heart. And so you look at online dating. Your conscience restricts you from it, right? If that's the case, don't do it, because violating your conscience is sin. So that's number two. Does this liberty violate my conscience? So next, oops, went back. I'm going to talk about number three, and this is a big one, so we're going to spend uh, a bit more time here. Stumbling block. Question number three. Will this liberty cause my brother to stumble? Will this liberty cause my brother to stumble? To look at this, we're going to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So please turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And once again, we're continuing in that passage about meat, sacrifice to idols. 1 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. Verse 9, but take care. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak? to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. All right, so it's a long passage, but what's going on here? Once again, we're talking about food sacrificed to idols. And so Paul, he gives this hypothetical scenario where someone um, is eating meat, a Christian is eating meat 
sacrifice to an idol, and they're in the idol's temple, right? And he's eating meat, and his conscience is strong, right? He's okay with it. It's like, hey, I'm getting a good discount on this meat. I can eat it, and I'm good. But then his brother in Christ, his weak brother, he's walking along the road, and he looks into his, the old, type, old temple where he used to worship, and he sees his brother, and he looks at him eating this meat, and his conscience tells him, that's wrong, right? Eating meat, that, that's been involved with pagan worship. You know, I shouldn't be eating that. But then he starts to, you know, smell the, the meat that's, that's cooking right outside, right? And his conscience, even though it's weak, right, he goes into the temple and he eats that meat anyways. And so he violates his conscience and he does it because his brother did it. He saw his brother eating that piece of meat. And so this is the example that Paul gives of a stumbling block. And let me define it a little, define it a little bit more clearly. A stumbling block um, is when I exercise a liberty and tempt another believer to sin or to violate his or her conscience. Right? When I exercise a liberty and tempt another believer to sin or to violate his or her conscience, right? That's what happened in the scenario that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 8. I do want to take a moment to clarify, because I hear this word stumbling block used uh, incorrectly, actually, many times. Um, Stumbling block does not refer to when another uh, believer simply disagrees with your choice of liberty, right? That's not a stumbling block. If if your brother just says, hey, what what you're doing is wrong, um, but you've looked at your conscience, you understand that this honors God, you understand this is a liberty. You know, if, if another believer accuses you that this is wrong, um, that's, not a, that's not necessarily a stumbling block that you've created, right? That, that other believer actually needs to go back and look at Romans 14 and understand that we're to welcome one another. But if you exercise a liberty, and then that weak brother comes and he's actually tempted to join in with that liberty with you, then it becomes a stumbling block, right? So I hope you understand that difference, right? That a stumbling block is, when, once again, when you tempt another believer to sin or to violate his or her conscience. I think the key um, command here when we talk about stumbling block is actually found in verse 9 when Paul says to take care. He's addressing the strong, right? When we're talking about stumbling blocks, he tells them to take care. Strong Christians must take the initiative to understand what can stumble your brother, right? Again, we're talking about stewardship. And so if you have a strong conscience in a particular liberty, it's actually up to you to understand what may actually stumble your brother or sister, and it takes care, it takes thought, it takes consideration. It's not something that we should wield without thinking. Right? This is a stewardship that God has given to us. A couple of pointers that I have is, is, uh, in, in understanding how to not have your brother stumble is to uh, consider your, the context that you're in, the life stage that you're at. You know, ask yourself, what are some common temptations that your brothers and sisters struggle with? There are some common ones in this life stage. What are some common ones? And really think hard about whether you should exercise your liberty there. Um, number two is also to be active in fellowship. You want to seek to understand how your brother or your sister struggles with sin. You know, find out about your, 
your brothers and sisters' testimony, and you can learn a lot about what could potentially stumble them. And let me give some examples to make this concrete. Um, I think in our context, um, alcohol is a big one. Many of you are in college, young adults, right? Um, alcohol is, is everywhere, right? And once again, alcohol is a freedom. God never says that you shall not drink, you shall not ever, ever have a beer. What he does command is do not get drunk. Um, but you have to understand, right, in, in our context, um, there are many believers who actually see alcohol as being wrong. And perhaps they were saved out of uh, a lifestyle of you know, clubbing or partying or alcoholism in their family. And when they see alcohol, it's wrong for them, right? It's wrong for them to consume it. And some are, are not tempted to drink, but some are. And so take care in how you exercise that liberty. If you go out to a restaurant or wherever, to your home, right? You really have to think twice about should you order that beer or that glass of wine or should you serve it? And if you know your brothers and sisters that are around you and you know that it's okay, that's fine, go for it. But if there's a brother who might struggle with it or you don't know, then take care. Right? It's a stewardship. We don't want this brother to stumble. It's easier to give up that drink and, and, uh, and not to cause your brother to stumble. Also, before I forget, is, is also to be careful about what you post on social media. Um, Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or whatever people use on social media, right? When you post a liberty, you know, even alcohol, to be careful with it. Um, you know, I don't know who the, the friend groups that you have on social media, but understand, right, if a brother or sister sees you with that glass of wine you're drinking or you're drinking a cocktail, it may actually cause that brother to stumble, right? For them to be tempted to go buy a beer themselves and they end up getting drunk and they... Uh, and, they, and worse sin happens to them. So be careful, right, about what you post on social media. Another example, right, is clothing choices. And this goes for both men and women in this room to think about what you wear. Um, once again, it's a liberty. God never says in Scripture that your clothes need to be, you know, a certain length or a certain, or a certain looseness or, or whatever. God never specifies that in his word. But we have to understand that in our context, young adults, um, anytime you're in a group, and I shouldn't be universal, but almost every time you're in a group of people, I, guarantee, I almost guarantee that there's going to be someone who struggles with lust. And so you have to be careful, right, with what you wear, because you can cause your brother or your sister to stumble by what you wear. I could give more examples, but... Even then, I think you're starting to understand the point that giving up your freedom is hard. It's really hard to give up your freedom. And, and I get it, right? I, I get it because in verse 13, Paul sets the standard of how much liberty we should give up. He says in verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And I've got to tell you that this command here, it and it really it hits me deep, because I, I, love, I love eating meat. Uh, I remember one time we had a couple over at our house, and you know, we're just chit-chatting or, and you know, just talking about whatever, and we started talking about what we cook for dinner. So we listed off some of our staple dishes, and then they did the same. And then um, the, the husband made this comment, saying, you know, hey, you know, sometimes we have meat at dinner, you know, and it's cool, but, but sometimes we don't have meat, and you know, that's cool too. And I'm just like... 
what is going on, man? No meat for dinner. That's not dinner. That's a snack, man. You got to have meat for dinner. What's going on? And so this standard that Paul sets in verse 13, it, it really hits home because meat is the foundation of my diet. But Paul says here that if giving, if meat causes your brother to stumble, I have to give up meat completely. I need to become a vegetarian. I need to take drastic action to keep my brother from stumbling. That's the standard that we need, that's the standard that we need to have as well, that if it makes your brother stumble, give it up. And that's really hard to do. But let me try to persuade you. Paul gives you some more reasons. And for this, we, we flip back actually to Romans 14. So three reasons to give up freedom. Right? Found in Romans 14, starting in verse 13. Number one, stumbling your brother is unloving and evil. Stumbling your brother is unloving and evil. Romans 14, starting in verse 13, says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. And so very clearly in verse 15, if you cause your brother to stumble, you're not walking in love. That's unloving. And in verse 16, you take something that's good, your liberty, your freedom in Christ, and you turn it into something evil. But really, to understand that's unloving and evil, you really have to look no further than the choice of word that Paul uses, the biblical language that he uses here, that it's causing your brother to stumble. Let me give you a scenario. You know, say we have someone, you know, Sunday or Friday night, and that person is, for lack of better words, weak. Perhaps they're disabled, or perhaps they are getting over an injury, or perhaps they're just elderly, right? And they're walking down this aisle, and they're trying to find a seat. I would want to bet that there is not a soul in this building tonight where this thought crosses their mind. Well, you know, I know that person's going to walk down the aisle, so I, you know, I have my backpack here. You know, I'm, I'm just going to plop it right down in the middle of the aisle. And, you know, I, I know that person's coming, and, but you know what? They could, they could just navigate, you know, they could just, you know, turn and kind of scoot their way around it. I would want to believe that not a single one of us would have that evil thought, but instead we would clear the path for them so that they can walk and find their seat. Or what if you didn't even realize that that person was coming to church and you inadvertently leave something in the aisle, your backpack or your purse or whatever, and then you found out later that that individual tripped over it. They stumbled it. They hit their head and they had a worse injury. Man, you would feel terrible inside because of the stumbling block that you created for them. And that's really the idea behind stumbling your brother. And that's why Paul says to take care when you exercise your liberty, to think of your weak brothers and sisters and remove any stumbling block as a way to love them. So that's the first one. Stumbling your brother is unloving and evil. Number two, grasping onto liberty misses the priority of the kingdom of God. Continue in verse 17, he says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Christ died for you, 
not so that you not primarily so that you would have all this christian liberty but he died for you so that you would have righteousness peace and joy but understand that when you cause your brother to stumble you rob them of these three things you cause them to commit unrighteousness and you rob them of their peace and joy in the holy spirit because they've fallen into sin and so when you hold on to your liberties when you grasp on to your liberties you are robbing them of the righteousness peace and joy of the christian life don't do that and number three number three and the most compelling reason to give up your freedom is that christ gave up his liberty to save me romans 15 verses 1 through 3 says we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up verse 3 for christ did not please himself but as it is written the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me you want to talk about someone who had freedom someone who had liberty someone who had rights it was jesus christ he had every right to stay in heaven he had every right to be at the right hand of the father and to spend eternity in his presence and to hear the angels serenade him day and night crying out holy 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 is the lord god almighty the whole earth is full of his glory but you know what he didn't hold on to a single divine liberty that he had christ though he was in the form of god did not count equality with god a thing to be grasped but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross someone with all of the liberty in the world he gave it up he emptied himself to save you to save the sinner to save the weak and he did it because he loved you he cared for you he considered you if god almighty would lay aside his liberty to save you how much more should we give up our liberty to keep our brother from stumbling we should not hesitate if you know your brother will stumble you should not hesitate to lay aside your liberty as an act of love to them because when you do that you're extending the exact love that you have experienced through the work of jesus christ and so we should be willing to give up our liberty for our brother lastly and we'll go through this quickly question number four will this liberty hinder my evangelism will this liberty hinder my evangelism <clears throat> for unbelievers um, context first as we talk about first corinthians 9 um, paul is defending his ministry because people are accusing him of taking money from people and he has every right right to be compensated as a minister of the of the gospel just as our pastors have a right to be paid for the work that they do for for the church but you know what paul actually gives that up to unblock a hindrance um, to unbelievers first corinthians 9 22 talks about this to the weak i became weak that i might win the weak i have become all things to all men so that i may by all means save some and so for paul 
The liberty that he gave up was receiving compensation. And in the context of the passage, he became a literal tent maker to pay for his own expenses. And he did it to remove this hindrance so that he could be a better witness. And so we should be willing to give up our liberties to make the gospel and ourselves more attractive to them, right? To unblock any hindrances. And I'm not saying that you should change the gospel message. I'm not saying you should compromise on your righteousness, right? People may be offended by that. And if they are, right, that's, that's just how it is, right? As being a Christian. But if it's a liberty that offends them, we should be willing to give that up, right? An example, or excuse me, yeah. And I have that line there. But an example today is, um, is gun ownership, right? There, there's some things in politics that are black and white that we need to fight against as Christians. But something like a liberty like owning a gun or shooting a gun, understand that even in the past few weeks that that is incredibly controversial, right? And you can have civilized discussions uh, about it, but just understand, right, for many unbelievers that this is a hot-button issue and this could turn them off to hearing about you, uh, hearing about other things from you. And so be careful about how you talk about your guns or whatever your liberties are. Uh, we want to make the gospel as attractive as possible and follow the example of Paul. All right. So, in summary, right, we talked about Christian liberty, right? And once again, right, we are free to enjoy many of the created things in this world without fear of God's judgment. What God has created is good. And so there's a liberty, right? We're free to enjoy it. What do we do with Christians who disagree with us on your liberty? You're to welcome them, right? Despite your differences, to welcome them. Not let it divide your friendship. Not let it divide our church if it's a liberty issue. Number three, right? Understand that your liberty is a stewardship. If you have a response, it's, with great freedom comes great responsibility, right? God has given you a lot of freedom, but we have to wield that responsibly in a way that honors God, in a way that you can live with a clear conscience, in a way that does not cause your brother to stumble, right? We need to exercise this liberty as a stewardship, okay? So let me pray for us. I'll close. Heavenly Father, we pray that um, you would use the words that uh, I've spoken tonight about Christian liberty and you would use it to convict uh, my brothers and sisters. I pray, Lord, that we would be willing to uh, give up any of our liberties so that we would not cause um, a brother to stumble. Help us to grow in this area and help us also to be unified and to understand that despite our liberties, Um, Lord, we should still be unified because we all follow Christ and we seek to honor him. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. All right, so I do have some discussion questions um, for your groups. Um, I think probably one of the Alexes will give more instruction, but here's some of the discussion questions that I have. Um, Number one, um, are there any Christian liberties um, that others practice that make it difficult for you to welcome them? And why? And not everyone has to answer this question, but I think it could generate some good discussion. Uh, Number two, is there a liberty that you are unsure if you should participate in? As a group, uh, work through the four guiding questions. So I want to make this really practical, and I hope hope that it is. 